Father, we come thanking you. I think of all of the, the songs all speaking to the reality of, of ultimately resting in you with a confidence that you are a God of our of creation and the, and the author of our salvation and that uh, you've called us to rest in you. And uh, we just thank you. And as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wanted to let you know that the daily breads for September, October, November are out on the shelf in the foyer and on the table underneath the missions map. And so uh, feel free to take a, a couple of them. Uh, if you need a couple more to take to uh, friends or people that you know that would like to have one, feel free to do so. And uh, uh, so just out in the foyer in the fellowship room there. Uh, continuing in Romans chapter 13. Uh, still with the first uh, few verses of the chapter, I'd like to read this morning again to you uh, verse, uh, verses 1 through 5. Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been institute, instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is, a good, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you, do not, if, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And that last phrase is the one that we've been working on the last uh, couple weeks here. Uh, for the sake of conscience. Um, Again, going back to uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, everybody has a conscience. And that's universal, okay? And uh, uh, Paul writes to us in an in a, in a overall context with that, especially pointing to the, the Gentiles without the law. But uh, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Their conflicting thoughts in reference to their conference or conscience uh, is, is what we look at in the sense of our conscience. Isn't that generally either our conscience is telling us the, you know, good or it's telling us wrong? And I think most of the time we think in terms of a picture of, of the little, you know, the, the, the demonic angel on one shoulder and the, and the heavenly angel on the other shoulder you know, typical cartoon fashion, if you will, you know, what should I do, what should I do kind of thing, and, and this debate back and forth. And I wanted to take a, a continue to take a, a look at this idea of, of our conscience, again, accusing us or excusing us. The accusing here is to, is to charge us with a wrong offense. And the word for excusing here is to make a defense like a lawyer would. And, and it's not to make excuses in the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a, an excuse and justifying, but more in the idea of when you do something right, you know that too. And, and, and so it defends you. Your conscience defends you. 
So based on, and, and to have a conscience doing this, in the first place you have to have an understanding of what's right and wrong. And this is where we were last week. The source of, of understanding where right and wrong initially enters into the picture because you think about this, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden initially did not have this battle going on. What happened? Well, we went through Genesis 3. We saw what happened. And what it was was that Eve listened to Satan and she took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and immediately her eyes, their eyes, because Adam joined with her, were opened. Immediately, this idea of conflicting conscience set in. And they saw that they were now out of step with God and his holiness and his, and, and uh, in fact, they, they tried to hide from God. So our conscience is based on a knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. And I was looking today to think in terms of the source for that. What's, what's driving our behavior? What drives your behavior, my behavior? And uh, I mentioned uh, briefly last week in a sense of the idea of you have, everybody has a belief window. Uh, we have a certain set of needs that we want to meet. Everybody has them. We all need to survive. We all need to love. We all need to uh, feel like we're contributing to, to the things, to feel important, if you will. And we all have, uh, 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 there's one that, they even put the, that we all have the need for variety. I thought that was a peculiar picture from a worldly point of view, looking at it all, the, all for the need of variety. But then again, the reality is, as I looked around at the number of pair of shoes I have, the number of shirts I have, and stuff like that, I said, I guess it must be true. Uh, you know, we, we, if, if we can have it, you know, if, our, if these life needs are being met, we've got our air, our water, our food, <laughs> all those kinds of things, shelter, then we start moving on to love and to be loved, these type of things. And that's the way the world looks at it. There's a fifth area that I would add to that picture, which is our spiritual need. And it's the one the world basically wants to ignore as a whole in the sense of the, the actual real source of spiritual stability. So I put on here what's driving my behavior, and I'm, and I'm saying that on my belief window, how to meet my needs is a lot of learned things that aren't necessarily scriptural. Where did I get all this information? Well, I got it from family primarily growing up initially, how to handle conflict. I'll share something with you. My daughter is, at this point, about nine months old. She's doing something for the third or fourth time that I told her not to do. She was, she was rapidly moving around already, crawling, and, and she, she thought that dog's food should be something that she should be able to get into. I'm of, the, of the, the temperament that we shouldn't have to child-proof everything and have to put the dog's food up. It's not fair to the dog, you know, that type of thing. And, and, and so, and I really lost my temper. Now, first off, a nine-month-old is not going to understand that. Secondly, you know, I, as I look back at it, I could have just moved the dog food, you know. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and I'm realizing that she's following suit because I was the one that sat underneath the kitchen sink eating the dog fives kibble. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, this is, uh, and I looked at it, but that anger surprised me. Caught me off guard. I took a step back, and I made a kind of a back in my head, not really a conscious choice, but I basically said, I will not do the disciplining Kathy will. I had a reason. Every time that something went wrong, my stepdad didn't hesitate to take initial response physically. Didn't, never a hesitation. You could be sitting at the dinner, say something un unintentional or, or silly or whatever, and you would be backhanded. Uh, my stepfather's favorite 
tool of, of, of uh, implement of, I called it implement of destruction, but uh, implement of, 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 of learning was a blank fishing rod, meaning blank, it has no eyes on it. And uh, I realized, I said, that's as close to my dad as I'm going to get in the sense of that. I went through it, I'm not going to, and I just backed off. On my belief window was I associated that my, my temperament, my behavior, and my words, and I thought, man, I'm not going to be like that. I don't want to be like that. And I was dealing with something that was going on from learned childhood behavior. I'm just saying, they're there. There's a lot of other things that fit into it, but family is a big source. Culture, the culture we're in, the way uh, one culture acts versus another culture. Uh, when, when we go down to, uh, you know, a, a, go to a foreign country, Stephanie, uh, and, and uh, you found that was quite the case, was it not? Guatemala was somewhat different than what you were accustomed to here. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay, and uh, whether it's Mexico or, uh, and I've, I've seen uh, friends of mine who have been uh, in Asia, I think of the Clarks in China, that, that they, that's part of their culture and they have a problem adapting to our culture, uh, or Japan, I mean. And, uh, and, and so uh, culture has a big influence on what's, how we act and how we treat each other and the, and the dignity and respect that we pay for each other, pay, pay for each other, give each other. Peers, our immediate friendship group. And certainly, you see that with kids growing up. Talked about that a little bit last week, and you know, the, just that idea that uh, we want to create, you know, an environment for our children, you know, by helping select their friends, whatever. Um, but as we get older, it's still the case. Our peers have a lot to do with how we perceive and handle situations. And I put here in a general context, religion. I didn't put true spirituality. I just put religion in a general context. The reason why I put it that way is because a lot of the world is affected by religion, but not all of them, very few of them are affected by, if you will, the true source of wisdom through God, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through his word. And I was, as I was looking at this, I realized something that I remember that kind of caught me. I, it's one of those things you kind of knew, but you didn't realize that, that, that even criminals have a kind of a code of honor among thieves. There's, there's even a phrase that is coined, honor among thieves. There, there is no honor among thieves. All you can't trust. But ultimately, there is a sense of values even within the criminal world where if you sink this low, you're, you're really an evil person. You're a bad person. When uh, uh, Tex Watson was con uh, convicted of the Manson murders that he was involved in and he put into prison, they had to put him into isolation to protect him because the other prisoners would have killed him. Period. They're, they're, he, was, he was below the radar on values in, in every way as far as even the criminal culture was concerned. And then we have a general, if you will, code of honor. And even if I stopped here and just said, and your conscience works off of these, you will still end up convicted. I have had, uh, I've shared this uh, a number of, of times over the years, but I, I just stuck in my mind as one kind of a picture. A very good friend of mine I worked with for years, uh, and he was the uh, head of the uh, warehouse for a large uh, furniture company. And uh, Steve and I would have talks for, uh, in the evening sometimes uh, for, uh, after work for, for long periods of time, talking about the Lord and this type of thing. His wife had become a Christian. He couldn't figure her out. And he was hoping that I get help and stuff like that. And he says, the hardest thing I'm having is this standard you guys go by. Everything is just wrong. Everything is sin. Everything you do... And he went through, every, you know, just kind of a list of all these kinds of things. And I said, I'll tell you what, Steve. I want you to make a list of your moral code. He says, what do you mean? I just said, well, whatever you think is right and wrong from your own personal belief window. And uh, share it with me tomorrow. 
He says, you don't want me to just, I said, no, I want you to think about it. Next day, he actually had it written out. And he went through it, and on the list were things, integrity, honesty, you know, uh, shoot from the hip, straightforward, you know, kind of, you know, uh, your word is your word type of, a uh, number of these things. And, and, and I asked, and, and there was also fidelity to his, his wife, loyalty, this type of thing. And I said, uh, as, we, as we looked at the overall thing, I said, any of these that you've ever broken? Well, I'm not perfect. I said, I rest my case. We just, we just lightened the load substantially compared to what you were thinking, the load that Christianity is putting on you, and you still can't make it. He said, oh, yeah, but that's just little. And I said, sin is sin, missing the mark. We all fall short, and as a result, we need a Savior. And so uh, that's the whole picture. Our conscience is going to convict us. Even if we have a standard that's not a biblical standard, it's still going to convict us, and we're all going to fall short. And so uh, we, we look and, and realize this comes out of going back to Genesis where as soon as, as Adam and Eve ate, their, the, their conscience, if you will, was corrupted. The knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, was apparent to them. And I look at how Satan attacked them, and, you, and think of this. You, did God really say this? Does his word really mean this? Look what you're missing out on. This fruit is good, luscious to the eye, and great to the taste. And I, like I said, I believe, I can't say this because Scripture doesn't say it, but I can see him biting into it and the juices running down his, the side of his, his mouth. Look what you are missing. God's holding back from you. As soon as he handed the, uh, the fruit over, as soon as the reach went for the fruit, the sin of the corruption actually had already happened. And this is where I left off pretty much last week. Satan had undermined their confidence, their faith in God. He had come up from behind, if you will, from a, and, and just... Just exploded. Undermining our faith is what Satan wants to do. And I realized as I was doing this, I'm not sure that I, I'm going to be able to explain how I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this, but Satan's attack, when he attacks us, isn't on our conscience. It's on what informs our conscience. Does that make sense to you? Now, if, if you don't have God's principles informing you, he doesn't really have to do too much attacking on your conscience. It'll take care of itself, okay? But as a believer, wrestling with the, the truth of God and this type of thing, notice what he attacked with Adam and Eve. Did God say his word? Did the God who has informed you Nah, not all true, or, or misinformation, or you didn't hear it right, or you're misinterpreting it, and he attacks what informs, as believers, informs our conscience. So again, it put me back to this question. Okay, Bob, what is informing your conscience? And again, I put the general picture first, family, culture, peers, and then this time I didn't put religion. This time I put God's word. And then that's when I really started to put this together for my thinking. But even there, especially there, this is where Satan attacks. For that matter, it's where all mankind really focuses their attack. On the word of God. 
Anybody that doesn't want to hear the word of God, that's where they focus their attack. They don't want to know God. They don't want to know Christ. They focus, Steve, my friend, your word values are too strict. Or, really big time, they're antiquated. They're just part of an old culture. We've evolved past that point. Oh, I'm not going to go there. Um, it's one of those things. All of a sudden, there was a whole new rabbit trail, and I, and I saw even the hole at the end. And I thought, no. Okay. Standard answer for, for Christian is what informs our conscience? Our standard answer is God's word. Really, you think about it. You know, we don't say, oh, well, I, I grew up with this and this and this. You say, no, I look to God's word. Okay, I want you to think about this. I look to God's word. Our standard answer is even God's word. But like I said, even there, we're under attack. Galatians were under attack. Paul writes to them very specifically in the first chapter as he's talking to them. He's saying, I'm really, I, I'm paraphrasing, I'm really kind of concerned and confused here. How could you possibly be falling away from everything I taught you for another gospel? Now, he was concerned about the Judaizers who were coming saying, well, you've got to do all the Jewish laws first in order to become a real Christian, okay? And Paul says, we already went through all of that, obviously. He says, the gospel doesn't deal with that. You don't have to do with that. That's not the way it works. And, and, and here they come in with this, and what, you're already slipping away to it. And it's, you misunderstand God's word. You haven't got it all. There's, there's more to it than you realize. I ended up getting drawn to a particular corner of this. I really started to think about who's informing my conscience. I am I guess you'd have to say very conservative politically speaking. I was conservative, politically speaking, before I was ever a Christian. I was a Ronald Reagan supporter even when he ran for governor. Uh, so I guess you'd say conservative Republican. But I bet you because Christian, I will say because the word over the years has changed the way I look at everything, somebody that may be a conservative Republican may scratch their head and look at me and say, I'm not sure. <laughs> because you've got some other ideas that don't, you know, quite inform. So maybe I'm a Republican. And no, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying, you know, I, 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 I was thinking, how much does my politics inform my, you know, right and wrong conscience, you know, type of thing. It was just a question. And then so I, and I started, I went back into this, and I, I said, okay, whose Christian values? Notice I didn't say the gods at this point. I said, whose Christian values have influenced my walk? Even before I w became a Christian, there was a Christian bookstore just opening up in the town that, uh, that we, Kathy and I were living in. Tex and Arliss Little were the owners. I was trying to figure out Christianity. I couldn't figure out especially why the, uh, the, 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 the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they so passionately wrote about the resurrection, and the resurrection was the stumbling block for me as much as any of it. I was trying to figure it out. I was doing history study. I was doing so much stuff. I needed more books. And so I went to Tex and Arliss actually looking, and they, they were just opening their bookstore, looking for a book that I had, had seen and advertised in a magazine, thinking that, and they said, well, actually, we don't have that book. In fact, we don't have a lot of books quite yet. We're just now opening. And they said, uh, it's going to be a little while before that we have a, a real good inventory. And I looked around, and, and I said, oh, well, you don't even have shelves. Well, we don't even you know, have, we're kind of slow because it costs so much to get the, the carpenter in here to do the shelving and all this kind of stuff. I said, I'll tell you what. You pay for the materials. I'll supply the, letter, the, the labor, 
and you account the labor to an account here, and you can give it back to me in books. They said, that sounds like a good deal. <laughs> Even my huge dictionary, that big you know, Webster huge dick, came from them. Um, and uh, I, uh, of course, needed help figuring out what books I needed to read. Arlos and Tex were, were more than willing to help, you know, give me some direction. And so they were the first people to have influence on me. And I will tell you that uh, their influence was really, really good in some areas and left me very confused in others. Uh, part of it was because of, of their particular distinctives, if you will, and on scriptural appearance. And the irony was is that, well, I'm just going to put it this way. I'll just be open with it. Tex and Arliss were very Pentecostal. But when I, was, I finally accepted the Lord, they were all excited, and they were saying, well, you need to, to, to go to church. And I was thinking, yeah, you're right. I need to go to church. But I didn't ask them to, you know, they invited me, but I didn't, you know, I was thinking, well, I don't know where to go to church. Kathy's mom gave me a clue. She says, good friend of mine that works at the hospital invited me to this church, and I've been going there ever since. And I said, oh, yeah. She says, yeah, he's not even there now, Ray Cartwright. I said, Ray Cartwright? Like in, you know, about X number of years old? She says, yeah. I said, went to church? Yeah. He had been my lab partner in college. In, in two biology classes, uh, an English interpretation class and an oral interpretation class. And we had become good buddies. And I won't tell you how we spent all our free time, but it wasn't very godly. And uh, he was divorced. And uh, I wasn't married yet. And uh, I figured, if, well, where is he? Well, he's off to Bible college. I thought, hmm. If they can reach Ray, they can help me. I'm serious. This is the way it went. And Jerry Williamson, the pastor, stepped in and became my buddy in the sense of he, there wasn't any question too stupid. He never came on to me and said, well, that's obvious or anything like that. He just, you know, and he wrestled with, with it with me. Never made me feel inadequate or anything like that. But the interesting thing was is that Jerry Williamson is the exact opposite of a Pentecostal. He's an ultra-secessionist conservative, which means no Pentecostal activity at all. So I still have some confusion going on in the back of my head with all of that. Because this church didn't do what Arliss and Texas Church did. But Jerry had a profound impact on the basic tenets of faith that I still hold this day. Another couple, Bill and Theon Burt. Just a real influence on me. And I was thinking of teachers at the time that were being becoming very pre predominantly, you know, they were talked about like that a lot. Uh, some of you probably, or all of you may be familiar with the name Bill Gothard, but maybe not familiar with his basic youth conflicts as they started out, anyway. And uh, the church was happening to be involved in that. We, we, we drove from Atascadero to Fresno every day and uh, went to these, these conferences and uh, had a profound effect. James Dobson was another. Family values, I, didn't, I needed new family values. And I started just making a list. Bill Jessup, Bryce Jessup. I don't mean anything to you, but they really meant a lot to me. Uh, Chuck Smith. Then somebody from another camp entered into the picture, John MacArthur. G. Campbell Morgan. Charles Spurgeon. These were books that I had acquired. Guess where? Stuart Briscoe. 
actually heard him speak and said, whoa, you know, I like what he has to say. R.C. Sproul, John Piper, more, more recently in my life, Steve Lawson, Sam Storm. And I'm looking at all these things and I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of people who have influenced my belief window in various ways of helping me set my values. And I'm looking at this list even now, and I put on my side of my notes, it, it's a visual picture for me. I wish I could convey it. It's a visual picture. You go, no. Uh, and I, I just simply took a step back, and I was looking at this list literally from a distance on my desk, and looking at it, and I thought, well, you know, who is in control of my belief window? That's now the question. Who's in control of my belief window? Do you realize how many Gothardites there are? Smithites, MacArthurites, Piperites, Lawsonites. Who's in control of my belief window again? Who were, you know, the convictions that direct my conscience, determine for me right and wrong, what is, what's having the primary influence? And I underlined, circled, however you want to do it, primary influence. Because I want to make sure you understand, having Bible scholars of both the past and, and, and the present are not, and in fact, it was interesting because I looked at all these people and I was thinking, as I've been growing over the years, I was thinking, who were their people? And of course, Spurgeon, if you look at the temporary, Spurgeon and, and, and G. Campbell Morgan come into that, but Calvin, Wesley, Edwards, Tozier, you know, you can just you can go on and make this, this list. And these are also people who have influenced me as a result because I looked at their footnotes and said, oh, that's where they got that, went out and bought the book. And I was looking at this and I said, is it possible to have all of this and miss what is most important? And I realized, yeah. I have a friend who's passed away a couple of years ago. He, when I met him, he was 84. Had been in church all his life. He could actually even quote scripture pretty good, you know, memorize certain passages and stuff like that. Had been on the board of, of the church he was currently in when I just after just before I met him. He'd been on the board of that church probably seven or eight years. And uh, I met him on a trip to Mexico. And we got to talking, and he says, well, I just accepted the Lord a few months ago. I said, wow, that's really neat. And, I, and I'd, I'd seen people accept the Lord in their, in their later years. And we got, I got, how, what happened? How did it, and, he, and he started to share. And then he says, you realize, he says, I've been in the church all my life. And it's a, quote, unquote, Christian denomination. He says, but they never, I never, in 80 Four years. I mean, he was there from his, from his parents, you know, from birth, basically. He says, I don't recall hearing the gospel message until an interim preacher came to our church a year ago. And he says, all of a sudden I realized I've been doing church, but I've never been church. I came to that conclusion. Yeah, I can have all of this place. I can read all of those people. I could learn how to parse Greek words better than anybody in here if I wanted to take the time. I think I, I've got the aptitude for it. And it wouldn't mean a thing without Christ. In fact, I've known men who are far better scholars than I am who are literally outside of Christ in their pulpit. So I thought, for me, what, what, how do I going to handle this? I, and I'm going to just share this. With, this is personal for me. What is foundational for me? 
And I go back to, actually, just going through Romans. And I, by the way, I thought about it as we were singing the songs. You'll, all, every one of these songs this morning seemed to be affirmation of what I want to share with you this morning. What is foundation for me? Well, if I go to Romans chapter 1 and I, and I, and I look through verses, uh, you know, the, 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 I'll say 20, 21 along in there, it says that nature reveals God. I'm just paraphrasing. Nature reveals God. Intelligent design. Someone put it into place. I'll let you know, that one I've never had a problem with. I've always believed there was a first cause, call him God, whatever you want to do. At that point, I accepted the reality that there was a starting place and that it was somehow infinite, eternal. And I never went further than that because I figured it was beyond man's comprehension. No way you could understand it. And I wasn't coming from any religious base to figure it out. He's revealed in nature. But what I didn't catch until I started wrestling with it, and with the help of texts and others, uh, he's revealed in his word. And that's where I realized there is a holy and perfect God who wants to have a relationship with me. But there is a dilemma, rather serious dilemma. He's perfect and I'm not. And so there's a gulf between us. I sound like Campus Crusade all of a sudden. He was looking for holy and perfect followers. By the way, Romans is, is quite important in this for me. I'm wrestling with this because it, there's an order even out of Romans that comes to this. There are none righteous, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None righteous. None righteous. No, not one. Go on a few verses later, 13 verses, 14 verses down the road. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jump three chapters, same verse, 623. The wages of sin is death. Okay. I finally had come to a conclusion. I know these things are, I can rest with confidence. These things are true. I've wrestled with these, I've, I've, I've looked at them, I've studied them, I've put them into play, and I just, I know that I know in the, this is, is the way God is looking at things. But then 623 finishes, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's something that goes with my faith, accepting Christ. God shows his love for us, Romans 5.8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've been justified if we are resting in him, saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. And you will be saved. Those are the things that became reality for me didn't fully understand it, but it became the base of my faith. August 15th, 1976, around 6.15 in the morning. And I said, if this is all true, then I must confess my sins. I must recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. I must recognize there is a God who is revealed in Christ as Son and present even now through his Holy Spirit. I believe. That was it. How do I know? I can't answer for you other than some obvious things. There was a peace that I hadn't had. I have to tell you, I did wrestle with that and wondered if I didn't self-inflict that peace kind of thing, you know, 
self-fulfilling really prophecy if I just transcend my God and you know, all that kind of stuff. Wrestled with that. Can you really have peace through the Word of God? I wonder where that came from. But as I was around other Christians and I and 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 fellowshiped with other believers and and I and I started to see what was going on in other people's lives, I realized there is a difference. There is something different. It's not perfection, so that's still something I had to wrestle with. I still didn't get this thing of wanting a clean conscience, pure conscience. Man, I didn't realize how much I was going to head into with that. But I knew that I had been justified. There was a confidence in my life that was building in that place. I was at peace with God through Jesus Christ. As a result, 8-1 became my mantra. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know I am a major mess up. There isn't a day that was going by that I wasn't wrestling, but I knew that God was real, his word was real, and if that's the case, Romans is real, and if that's the case, this is real, and if that's the case, then I rest with 8-1 as the truth for my life. There is no condemnation. And I added to that with absolute confidence the end of chapter 8 as well, that there's nothing that can separate me, nothing created that can separate me from the love of God. I was told by a good friend, Bill Putnam, that uh, he came and was an evangelist speaking in my church at a low time for me. I was wrestling with things, and he took me, and he says, well, how did, you know, what's the core? What's the base? What's, what, what do you know that you is true? Because I was wrestling basically with creationism and stuff like that. He says, what do you know to be true? And I said, this. He says, if you need to, start every day with that. And I wondered, by the way, have you ever thought about the fact that, you know, just starting every day with that acknowledgement, God's sovereign creator. I went to Mexico with a guy that, was, that, that I had the room with uh, and the uh, motel on the way down and the motel on the way back. They put us into both in the same room because we both have CPAPs and we could, we could we, you know, irritate each other instead of somebody else. And uh, he woke up in the morning and, 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 in fact, I had to wake him up. He was, he was, get, he was just sawing him off and, and he was counting on me waking him up because I had the alarm. And I was waking him up, and the first, it startled me. He was so, praise God, thank you, today, Lord, for today. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I was with a TV evangelist. And uh, that's what comes out of his mouth every morning. He decided that's the way he was going to start his day. It was a choice, and it, was, and, it, and it worked. Daily, start his day there. Other people to remind you, how many times do you think about God during the day? I have a, uh, an acquaintance, I think I've shared this with you before, sets his watch. He was one of the first, uh, when I first met him, it was when the, you, the first timer watches were coming out that you could set alarms, you know, multiple alarms. And he had one set that would go off five minutes after the hour, uh, every, every hour. Just be, that was it. He said, that's my reminder. Have I thought about God in the last hour? I kind of looked at him like, yeah, that's kind of a thing. Then I realized, that's not a bad idea. What's wrong with needing prompters? What's wrong with setting up things that remind you, you know, to, to, to take this specific time every day to meditate, to read the Word of God? We do all of these different things. And I just want to suggest to you that, that, that what it is is that, that we are needing to always remember where we have come from, what we do know to be true, hang on to that, and let that be your foundation. And if there's a point where you're wrestling today or in any aspect of this, turn around and say, but this I know. And because I'm confident in this, I'm going to continue to wrestle with this with the confidence that I may never know the complete answer because I'm not there yet. 
there is something going on that I am in the kingdom of God, but not there yet. And Paul says, I will see it clearly at some point, especially when I'm face to face. Am I willing to rest in that with a confidence? Back to faith, isn't it? That's the bubble, even as a believer, that Satan wants to pop. Galatians says that for freedom Christ has set me free. I was thinking of the song Free at Last. There's various versions out. There's even a new one out. And, and uh, just, But I'm free at last. And I thought, what am I free from? And it hit me. I'm free. <laughs> this is going to sound a little crazy. Just go with me for a second here. I'm free from a guilty conscience. I'm free from that picture where when my conscience says you are dirty, you don't deserve, you belong here and not here, I can say, no, by the blood of Christ, this is who I am. I'm not free from a convicting conscience. That's why I said, give me a chance here. Not free from a convicting conscience that tells me right and wrong from God's word. I'm free from a guilty conscience that puts me into condemnation and making me question my relationship with God. My sins have been forgiven. I am joint heirs with Jesus forever. God created us to be in a relationship with him, to trust, to rest in him, to have faith in him, to, you know, to, to rest in his word. And we have all chosen independence, sin. So let me say that again. God created us to be in relationship with him, to trust and to rest in him. That's faith in God. But we have all chosen independence, wanting to be, quotation marks, free, trust in ourselves, faith in man. Result, we actually lost our true freedom. And Paul says, I am free at last, in a sense, that for freedom, Christ has set you free. To be in that free at last context, what am I free to be? I am finally free to be what God created me to be. For some people, that isn't freedom at all. They're still back in the independence road thinking, I want to go on my own track. I use a train. You've heard me do this before. A train whizzing down the hill, having a great time. I don't know if you've ever ridden on a, on a flat car on a train. Uh, it's an experience. Uh, it's probably not legal, huh? Uh, never mind, I didn't say that. It's a, it is. It's, it's quite an experience. And you realize, though, that when you come over the Cuesta grade and you're going through tunnels and coming in and there's all of a sudden cliffs on the side that you're very glad that the train has these special wheels that keep it right on this track. You know? And that picture of train is always stuck in the back of my head as a good picture of being free. That train is free to be exactly what it was designed to be as long as it stays on the track. If it goes for independent freedom, its own, its own direction, it will jump the rail. What happens to a train that jumps the rail? Well, if you're looking on Cuesta Pass and you look down that one ravine, it's, it's a long ways down. It's going to be quite a ride. But it's going to end in disaster. It was much better to arrive back at the roundhouse in San Luis Obispo and get off the train on, on, on solid ground with no, no crash. Okay, we are in a sense, that's, we, we look at, we want our freedom just to go whatever direction we want to go, not even thinking about where it ends up ultimately. And I'm suggesting that that's our confusion about freedom. We are free when we are really on the track to be what God created us to be. And I want to close with this thought. Think about what God created us to be. 
Go back to Genesis chapter 1 where we were last week and, and, and think about where, what, what, what it is that God says in reference to Adam and Eve when he says we created man in his image and, and, and he, then he tells them to, to go, to multiply, and then he asks, specifically puts them in do, control or puts them as dominion, in dominion over the garden and all of the earth. Everything was in submission. Everything was there uh, in the sense that there, there was no fear of the animals. There was there, everything it was in harmony, and they were in charge. And this idea of, 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 of relationship with God at the same time, they were in fellowship, actual fellowship, face-to-face, kind of talking with God in the garden kind of picture. And then they were obviously in fellowship with each other without that eye-opening experience at that point. They were in dominion. They reigned. They were regents is another word for that. Dominion, word dominion, means to be appointed by a higher authority to govern. And that was lost. But it's reclaimed through Christ. We're fellow heirs. And he tells us in, in, uh, that we're going to reign with him forever. And the picture that of this, this picture of reign with him forever, uh, like how Second Timothy is, is again this idea of co-regent. He's actually embracing us as brothers and sisters, coming in and saying, "You will reign with me forever over the earth, new heavens, new earth." End of Revelation. We will reign with him for. Ever free of sin or the influence of sin or any presence of sin, any shadow of sin, gone. That's what God designed us for. And that's what we will have. We are free at last. So all of this thing about conscience, my conscience is there as a Christian to convict me, yes, but not to condemn me. And if it starts to get into that point where I feel some condemnation or that confusion, like, do I really try? Then I need to sit down with a fellow believer, a friend, or, or with the, 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 as, as, as my friend uh, uh, shared with me, Bill Putnam, was go through your beginning point of when you, what it is that, that brought you to the Lord and, 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 and just say, this is what I know to be true. And all of this comes clearly evident in communion. Free for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set you free. And how did he do that? By taking the penalty of sin that we could not face. And in his absolute perfection, offering himself on the cross, in my place, in your place. And as we take communion, that's what we celebrate. The Christ of all creation, God of all creation, coming in, in the flesh to pour out his blood to set us free. Ask the ushers to come forward. Um, to pass the communion out, hold it until we've all been served, please.
sacrifice his body and his poured out blood and uh, that that picture that comes with that for us the words it is finished on the cross he said it's done what that meant was there is nothing left to be done Mm -hmm. to bring about what was necessary for salvation there wasn't anything that we could bring to the table. The God of all creation became man. The bread representing his flesh. And so he took the bread at that meal. And after giving thanks for it, he broke it, passed it to the disciples, and he asked them to eat it in remembrance of him. And to do so as often as they, First uh, Corinthians, or uh, in, in uh, Acts, the book of Acts, they did it as often as they gathered. They broke the bread and celebrated the gift of life that Christ had given us. Let's share the bread together. At the end of the meal, he took that simpkin symbol that represents what he's done for us, the pouring out of his blood. He held the cup there and said, this is my blood poured out for you to purchase the covenant. And he asked this again often as we would drink this together to do it in remembrance of him until he returns. Father, once again, we thank you. We realize our plight without you. The God of all creation indeed is our Savior. As we rest in that, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to build in us that confidence to rest in that in every way with our life. Not just to rest in your grace for, for uh, moments at a time, but that it becomes that continual covering over us that we realize it never leaves us. We can, this is the place you want us to be constantly, resting in you. And when our conscience does convict us, 
Lord, of, of, of things that are separating us from you, that are keeping us from being able to rest fully in you. We ask, Lord, that you would con- bring it on strong. Bring that conviction that we need to have the heart broken over sin and, and uh, that we can feel that sense of, of, of grace overwhelm us again, knowing that the God of all creation says if we will just simply confess our sins literally from the heart, the intent, if we will confess our sins, that you are faithful, you are just, you will forgive us. You restore us in every way without hesitation. Thank you that we can rest with that confidence. The Lord of all creation, the Lord of our salvation, is also our mediator in heaven, standing between us and God. Thank you that your grace has covered us. In Jesus' name.